Thank you very much. Rachel and Sam, that was lovely. Thank you. And as always, thank you so much to Steve and Jennifer for leading us. And appreciate everyone utilizing their talents, especially when they're talents that I do not have at all. Um, but that was lovely. Uh, I was thinking this morning when I was driving here of how I feel like Christmas time and the few weeks before Easter for a pastor about the busiest time of the year. And I know for many people here, this is also a busy time getting ready for planting and people who have jobs and other aspects of agriculture. And it's just a busy time for many of us. And uh, so if you're just stressed out right now and thinking of everything that needs to be done and not feeling like you have enough time to get it done, um, that it'll pass. It'll just go one day at a time, and we'll get through it. Also wanted to mention again, I, I mentioned this last week, the directory. We're updating the directory. Um, I can promise you it's not going to be done before Easter, just, again, with everything going on. Um, but it is in the works. I still am getting updates, so if you do have any updates, changes, and phone numbers, changes in address, um, anything else that you want to change, if you want to change your picture, um, send that stuff to me and we'll have that in the updated version of the directory, but excited to have that. John chapter 18 is where we'll be this morning, if you would uh, join me in our passage. John chapter 18, verses 28, I'm going to read through the end of the chapter, although we're not actually going to cover that entire section today. Then they, led the, then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? After he said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a robber. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this day, and we praise you for 
your many blessings that we have in our lives. Lord, we want to continue to pray for the Eisenman family and the loss of this great niece. Lord, we pray for her parents and grandparents. Lord, again, such a heartbreaking time of mourning and grief, and we continue to lift them up. Lord, we also want to pray for Nancy, this broken leg that she has suffered. Lord, we want to pray for some of the complicating factors delaying surgery to, to get past and for her to be able to have the surgery she needs and for a speedy recovery for her. Lord, we also continue to pray for Kay as she's in the hospital. Lord, and we're thankful that they have some more answers, but just continue to pay, pray for treatment and for her to respond well to that. And Lord, to be able to be home soon. Lord, we thank you again that we have the opportunity to come together today to magnify your great name, to worship your great name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we return to the Gospel of John after taking a one-week hiatus to talk about the biblical theme of kingship last week. And we'll touch again on that theme today as we study in chapter 18. I won't get into too much detail in recapping last week, but for those who weren't here, we talked through various Old Testament passages and saw this developing theme of kingship, where God is the ultimate king of the universe, who appoints the first two people, Adam and Eve, as his vice regents, or the king and queen of the earth. In Genesis 3, they lose the kingdom due to sin, but in that same chapter, Genesis 3, God promises a coming offspring of the woman who, as the Old Testament unfolds, we learn that he will be a king and that he will be born in the line of David. This theme of a Davidic king gets picked up in the prophets where the idea of a Davidic king is further developed as one who will be a servant of the Lord who will suffer. In other words, we will have a king who is also the suffering servant. And last week, our focus was almost exclusively in the Old Testament. And again, we will revisit that theme again today as we study John chapter 18. In today's passage, the theme of kingship will come up as Jesus is confronted by the Roman governor, a man named Pontius Pilate. And in this passage, we will see Christ's heavenly kingdom coming into conflict with an earthly kingdom. And we'll look at this passage today in three scenes. We'll see Jesus brought before Pilate, Pilate's interaction with the Jewish ruling council, and Pilate's interaction with Jesus. Through the rest of chapter 18 into chapter 19, we have a series of scenes that take place at the headquarters of Pilate where the scenes change and are divided between Pilate coming outside of his headquarters to talk to the Jewish leadership and then going back inside to speak with Jesus directly. And so that's kind of what divides up the rest of chapter 18 all the way up until Jesus is delivered to be crucified. This changing of locations. But with that background, we'll jump into our first scene today and we'll look at Jesus being brought before Pilate beginning in verse 28. Then they led Jesus to the house of Caiaphas. Excuse me. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. Now, verse 28 is a pretty long verse, and there's a lot to unpack. 
because it's transitioning between what came before it and to the next part of the passage. When we were last in John a couple weeks ago, we saw that Jesus had been arrested and brought to a man named Annas. And we mentioned at the time that Annas was the former high priest and the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the current high priest. And in John 18, verse 24, when Jesus is being interrogated by Annas, Annas eventually sends him to Caiaphas. I know that's a lot of back and forth. As the high priest, Caiaphas was also the head of the Jewish ruling council, for those of you who know the name of it, the Sanhedrin. Now, the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke record Jesus being tried before the council, but that scene is omitted in John's Gospel. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the scene, it's a kangaroo court, if you've ever heard that term. It's a show trial where they keep trotting out different witnesses against Jesus for the purpose of convicting Jesus, but their testimonies don't even agree. At first, they're unable to bring any charges against Jesus because of conflicting witnesses. But ultimately, they accuse Jesus of blasphemy. Why does John leave that out? We don't know why exactly. But I actually think it's interesting that John does leave that scene out. Because in John's recording of events, Jesus goes directly from Annas. Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin are basically skipped over. And we next pick up with Jesus being brought to Pilate. Perhaps John doesn't record the trial for two reasons. First, because John knew the story was already out there in the other Gospels. Second, because ultimately the trial before Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin was an illegitimate trial where the Sanhedrin were ultimately going to bring Jesus to Pilate no matter what. And so in some sense, the trial doesn't really matter because they had already decided the verdict before they began. John still captures the ultimate force that the Jewish council brings Jesus before the Roman governor on trumped up charges. And that's where verse 28 picks up at the Roman headquarters of Pilate. John adds the note, they themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. Now, the point John is making there is reminding us that the Jewish council, the Jewish people had strict ceremonial laws of cleansing. Being the time of the year for Passover, the council members did not want to defile themselves by going into a non-Jewish, unclean, Gentile environment. And because they cared so much about the purity of the Old Testament law, they stay outside. Now, if that isn't the irony of ironies, they can't bring themselves to dare violate the purification standards while they're seeking to have an innocent man executed. And in a further ratcheting up of the irony, the council doesn't want to violate the Passover while they're seeking to have Jesus, who is the true Passover lamb, led to his own slaughter. It's the pinnacle of hypocrisy. Appearing to be devoutly religious, but inwardly plotting, inwardly having hatred for someone. So often, we, 
can present the right appearance on the outside, but be totally fraudulent at heart. By outward appearances, it would have looked like the ruling council had deep reverence for the law when it was the heart that matters. Our society has a tendency to put so much more emphasis on outward actions than inward transformation. In, in one way, that makes sense, because we see what people do when we can't look into the souls of other people. But the danger is that we can have a society that becomes all about performance. But if it's not coming from faith, then it doesn't save us, because we are not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. There are plenty of nice, moral people who are strangers to Jesus and dead in their sins. The Sanhedrin appeared to be morally reverent. In an earlier scene during the ministry of Jesus, he warns the Pharisees of their own external righteousness while being devoid of internal holiness. In the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 23, verses 25 and 26, Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. So there Jesus is using a metaphor of a clean dish. Imagine a bowl that's dirty and unclean on the inside, has soup or something nasty that was eaten out of it, and you just rinse the outside of the bowl. It's not clean. At least that's what Carrie tells me. <laughs> the world is full of people who are outwardly very nice people, but who are inwardly faithless. And again, who are strangers to Christ. In 1 Samuel chapter, chapter 16, verse 7, it says, The Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Now, as I said a moment ago, we can't look into other people's hearts and souls. But we can examine our own. That's the challenge which the Apostle Paul gave to the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, when he said, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? That we need to examine our own hearts. That do we live the way we live out of a genuine love for God? Or do we do it because we think it's what is the basis of what saves us before God? Again, there's nothing wrong with being nice and being good. But the problem is when we do those things because we think that that is what gives us our merit and standing before an infinitely holy God. The ruling council betraying Jesus while keeping the outward aspects of the law wasn't because they loved God. It was because they loved themselves and they loved their status. Second scene, Pilate and the council, beginning in verse 29. So Pilate went outside to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? 
we see this introduced by movement again from outside, from inside to outside and back inside. Pilate comes out, he addresses the assembly. A few historical notes on this man, Pontius Pilate. He was a Roman regional governor. First century Jewish historians who write about him, like Josephus and Philo, talk about his brutality of Pilate. Philo describes him as of spiteful disposition and an exceedingly wrathful man. He also described Pilate as being corrupt. Pilate was himself not Jewish and was more loyal to Roman pagan religion rather than to Jewish beliefs. There were several violent conflicts with the Jews during his tenure. Josephus records a crackdown of Samaritan Jews during Pilate's reign. The Gospel of Luke makes reference almost in passing to another heavy-handed military event between Pilate and the Jews. Luke chapter 13, verse 1. There were some present at that very time who told him about, referring to Jesus, who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifice. That's confusing wording. And again, that comes in the middle of the end of chapter 12 and going into chapter 13, which is a section where Jesus is teaching. And then again, almost as an aside, Luke quickly mentions this and doesn't revisit it. But what he seems to be saying is that there were Jews who were offering sacrifices in accordance with the Old Testament laws who Pilate had had killed. And then to further dishonor and defile these people, he took some of their blood and had it mixed with the blood of the animal sacrifices that they were offering. Again, to defile the people. Pilate did several things during his reign which led to backlash from the Jewish people in his territory. He put images of the Roman emperor up in Jerusalem. He used gold from the temple to finance the Roman aqueduct, or part of the Roman aqueduct. When Jews protested, Pilate had his guards engage in a violent confrontation, which led to many deaths. Historians date that event to the mid to late 20s to 30 AD. So it's a recent event when Jesus is brought to Pilate within just a few years. I point out these historical details because Pilate is just largely a name to us, just largely this figure that we read about in the biblical accounts. But he was a tyrannical and wicked leader, and brutal events in his reign were still fresh in the minds of the local Jewish council. And that background makes it all the more striking that this is the man to whom they bring Jesus. Now, they didn't have much choice. While they had their own Jewish courts, since they were under Roman rule, they did not have the authority to exercise a capital punishment. But to crucify one man whom they hated, it forced, them, it forced the council to have dealings with another man whom they hated. For those who don't know your Bibles well, or I'm sorry, for those of you who do know your Bibles well, when I say that the Jewish court couldn't use capital punishment, you might think to yourself, what about the woman, what about the woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8? What about Stephen in the book of Acts? Neither of those were sanctioned. They were really more examples of lynch mobs who were going after people rather than officially 
governed and sanctioned executions. Pilate, in the passage, asks what the accusation is against Jesus. Edward Clink argues that this is really the beginning of a new trial, where Pilate is the judge, the counsel is the prosecutor, and Jesus is the defendant. Verse 30, we see the response. It's somewhat snarky. They answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Now, when Jesus had been arrested, Roman guards were part of the arresting party, and so it's likely that Pilate had given permission for his guards to be part of the group who arrested Jesus. But here, when Pilate asks for a charge, the council gives a somewhat dismissive and shrewd answer, suggesting the mere fact that they have brought Jesus to Pilate ought to confirm his guilt. They just want a rubber stamp. With all of that, perhaps the council had anticipated that Pilate would just quickly agree to their charges without question. Leon Morris notes that the council is actually in a pretty difficult position because they don't actually have a legitimate charge to bring against Jesus. Yes, they consider Jesus to be guilty of blasphemy. But Pilate wouldn't have cared about that. Blasphemy was a violation of Jewish law, not Roman law. Some scholars also speculate that Pilate might be making the leaders jump through a bunch of hoops just because he can, just to be antagonistic, that him and the Jewish leaders did not have a good relationship. There was mutual animosity. And so he's just asking more questions for its own sake, not so much out of any deep desire or concern for Jesus one way or the other. Now, that's speculative, but I think verse 31 adds credence to that idea. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. Again, that seems to be almost mocking the council. Pilate asks for a charge. They say that they wouldn't have brought Jesus to him if he were innocent. Pilate says, okay, well then just judge him by your own laws. But they can't do that, as we've already discussed. They're under Roman rule. And the fact that they couldn't do that was something that was a sore subject. People on the council, Jewish people in Jerusalem at the time, wanted to be a free and independent state. As I've said many times before, it was a source of national disgrace that they were under Roman rule. And here, Pilate is again reminding them of the fact that they need him. Verse 32. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Now, this verse is an aside from the Apostle John in interpreting the conversation between Pilate and the council. So, we already know from the story that Jesus was brought to Pilate because they were seeking to have him killed. They couldn't carry out that execution on their own. Had they been able to, they would not have crucified Jesus. Instead, the more common method of capital punishment in Judaism was death by stoning. 
Jesus had previously revealed that he was going to be crucified in John chapter 12 when he said in verses 32 and 33, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself when I am lifted up from the earth. And then John says in verse 33, he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. And so what John is saying in chapter 18 is the fact that it could not be a Jewish execution but needed to be a Roman crucifixion was fulfillment of what Jesus had already said in chapter 12. Come to our third scene, Jesus and Pilate. Here, Pilate goes from outside, inside, and begins his own interrogation of Jesus. Verse 33. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? When the text says that Pilate entered his headquarters, again, as we keep pointing out, it is what helps keep the different scenes straight, that that's what's transitioning the story and moving it forward. And he asks Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? By virtue of the question, it points to Pilate having some knowledge of Jesus. While the Jewish council accused Jesus of blasphemy, what they actually charge him with to Pilate is insurrection. Insurrection against Rome. As I've already said, Pilate would not have cared about blasphemy against Jewish beliefs. But he might have cared about insurrection, especially a threat against Rome. All four Gospels record Pilate asking this question. Is this the king of the Jews? Some commentators argue that grammatically, the tone in which Pilate asks the question is somewhat emphatic. More like, are you the king of the Jews? That Pilate has heard so much about Jesus. And finally, Jesus has been brought to him. He's heard all of these charges, all of these rumors swirling around. He finally sees them and is like, this guy? Verse 34, Jesus answered, do you say that of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Jesus responds to the question with a question of his own. Just like we had seen with Annas a couple weeks ago, Jesus becomes the one who is asking the questions. Ultimately, Jesus does not give a simple yes or no to Pilate's question. Because Pilate's question is too broad. It depends what Pilate means when he says king of the Jews. Is Jesus the promised Davidic king? Yes. Is Jesus attempting to overthrow Caesar? No. Did Jesus come to usher in a kingdom? Yes. Did Jesus come to bring down Rome's kingdom? No. Is he the king of the Jews? Yes and no. So Jesus asks Pilate where his question is coming from. And so after Jesus asks do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? In verse 35, Pilate answered him, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Seems like that strikes a nerve. When Pilate says, Am I a Jew? He's not. 
And so the nature of this question seems to suggest that it doesn't matter to him if Jesus is the Messiah or if Jesus thinks he's the Messiah. By saying, your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me, Pilate tries to distance himself from the Jewish ruling council. But in reality, in the story, he is actually inching closer to them. Think about it. A few weeks ago, when we talked about Jesus being arrested by temple guards and Roman guards, at the time, we talked about how that was meant to be a a symbol of the world. That you have the conspiratory arrest perpetrated by the Jewish leadership and by the Roman guards. There you have represented Jews and Gentiles. It's symbolic of the world. Similarly, with this trial, you have the Jewish leaders bringing Jesus before the Roman governor. Once again, it's symbolic of the world. And they both need each other. The Jewish leaders can't have Jesus crucified without Rome's approval. But here, Pilate is forced to interrogate Jesus based on the testimony of Jewish leaders, symbols of Israel and the Gentile world. And eventually, they'll be forced to take the same side, to crucify Jesus. Verse 36, Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world. Jesus twice says that his kingdom is not of this world. That's why it's not so simple to give Pilate just a yes or no to the question. When he asks Jesus if he's the king of the Jews. Jesus has not come to usher in a kingdom which overthrows other kingdoms. Jesus has not come to usher in a kingdom that's meant to operate by the power of the sword or military. Jesus says in his response in this verse that if that were his goal, he would have instructed his followers not to follow him. Rather, he would have instructed his followers not to allow him to be taken. But he came forward willingly And allows himself to be arrested because Jesus has not come to usher in what the world thinks of as a kingdom. He has not come to lead the type of revolution that the world thinks of as revolutionary. He has not come to do it by the sword. Jesus is the promised Davidic king. He's the one who fulfills the kingdom theme. He is the suffering servant of the Lord who ushers the kingdom of heaven into the world. That's an especially prominent theme in the Gospel of Matthew, by the way. It's not mentioned in as much detail in John's Gospel, but it's not absent. And we certainly see it alluded to when Jesus talks of his kingdom not being of this world. Briefly, let's consider kingdom language in the Gospel of John. In John chapter 1, when the apostle Nathaniel first meets Jesus, he's so overwhelmed by his interaction that he refers to Jesus as the king of Israel. In John chapter 3, Nicodemus comes to Jesus. As I've mentioned numerous times in our study of John, Nicodemus is the leading Jewish scholar of his day. And he appears to be intrigued by Jesus and what he has taught and done. 
In John chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, it says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs you do unless God is with him. How does Jesus respond? John chapter 3, verse 3, Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus will say the same thing a couple verses later in response to spiritual rebirth as a prerequisite for entering the kingdom of God. In John 6, Jesus has gained so much popularity that there are Israelites who want to make him king by force. That's significant as we've also mentioned before, the Israelites' views in the first century of a coming Messiah often revolve around an earthly king who would lead Israel to independence against Rome. And so the people see Jesus and they want him to be their king. John chapter 6, verse 15. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. We see similar reverence in John chapter 12. When Jesus comes to Jerusalem, it's the final week of his life. Again, John chapter 12 through 20, it's all about a week of actual time. And Jesus comes to Jerusalem for the final week of his life, Palm Sunday. They give him a welcome fit for a king as Jesus triumphantly enters Jerusalem to cheering crowds. Chapter 12, verses 12 and 13. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Jesus is the king whose kingdom is not of this world. Lord willing, the plan next week is to continue to visit this kingdom theme. But for today, I want to close with this. You have Jesus and you have Rome. And this is an idea that I'm borrowing from Tim Keller in a sermon that he delivered on this passage. To that time in history, Rome was the greatest example of military, political, and cultural power that the world had ever seen. And Pontius Pilate, one of their governors, is looking Jesus in the eye. The church versus the state. Everything we see about Jesus during his ministry is humble. He's born in humble circumstances to an average family. There's no room for him in the inn. Born in an obscure little town called Bethlehem, not Rome, not Jerusalem. Takes the job of a carpenter. Humble. Nothing wrong with that job, but humble. You see the group of people who he has as his friends? They're not the best and brightest. Pretty average group. But that's the group who Jesus takes to be his disciples. They're not elite. There's nothing really special about themselves. What gives their life meaning and significance is the person whom they follow. Those are the people who start the church. They have no real power. They're not military strategists. They're not political experts. But what they do have is a message that is powerful. 
that there is eternal life because we have a Savior who died, who rose, who lives today. And that is the same spirit of humility in which the church historically has flourished. All over the world today, the church is growing. All over the world, people of every tribe and tongue and nation are coming to know Christ. And the point that Keller makes, which I think is especially helpful, is that the history of the church has been through the grassroots. It's been people personally sharing the gospel. It's been the work of the local church. It's been the work of humble missionaries who have served for centuries all over the world. People whose names we'll never know on this side of eternity. Now, contrast that with the many centuries in Europe where they tried to force Christianity. You had state churches. Everyone was a Christian because you had to be. Guess what? In Europe today, the church is dying because you can't force the gospel. You can't force faith. Yeah, you can force compliance. You can force people to follow the rules if they don't want to suffer the consequences. But you can't force the human soul into believing something that it doesn't believe. All around the world, the gospel is advancing. Yet in Europe, the churches are dying. When the church gets connected with power, it falls. Because that's not how it started. That was not the type of ministry which... Jesus had in the world, and it was not the church that he founded. Europe got away from that vision, and you have a continent largely in spiritual darkness. Earlier in this sermon, I talked about appearances, how groups like the Pharisees and the Jewish ruling council kept up the appearance of being deeply religious people when really they weren't. There are plenty of nice, moral people who are strangers to Jesus, who are lost in their sins. We often look around at the world, and we see the sin that is all around us, and it's terrible. And it's something that we should lament, we should mourn, we should grieve. But it's a symptom, not a disease. The disease is a world and a society that doesn't know the gospel. And the cure is not morality. The cure is the gospel and the lives which are transformed by knowing Jesus. Because a person who has a major area of sin in their life, if they stop doing that but don't know Jesus, they're just as dead in their sins. And so that's the danger. A society where our emphasis is on compliance and people being nice people. Now, don't misunderstand. I'm not saying that we should never encourage moral change or to advocate for laws that are in accordance with our beliefs and values. But we must do that in keeping in mind that a change in activity is not the hope of the world. The Lord Jesus is the hope of the world. And when we put... Outward transformation ahead of hearts and minds changed by the gospel, we get it backwards. It's the other way around. It's people being transformed by the gospel and living lives that reflect that. 
One thing that is a great blessing that we have here in America is freedom of religion. Unlike Europe, which had many centuries of state-run churches and where there are places still today that have state-run churches. We didn't have that, at least not for so many generations. So it hasn't destroyed the church in America in the way it largely has been in Europe. But closely related to that, we still have a cultural Christianity where we emphasize being good but preach a gospel of cheap grace. I think of the challenges of evangelism in our culture. It's not so surprising when you really think about it that we have a cultural Christianity where anyone can simply claim to be a Christian, and if they're nice, we assume that they are. And we've had generations of that mindset, which has created a society of people who assume faith and devalue preaching the gospel. But that is our hope, and that is our calling, to share that message, to know that message. Do you have one person in your life who doesn't know Jesus, who you're praying for? Something we talked about a few weeks ago at our evangelism training. Do you have one person in your life who doesn't know Jesus, who you're looking for opportunities to share him with? That's how the gospel gets spread. That's how the gospel advances. It doesn't happen through the state. It doesn't happen through politics or laws that we might even support. It doesn't happen through being moral. It happens through faith in Christ. And may we be a church who shares that message with the world. We so naturally oppose authority. Jesus didn't come to be a dictator, but he came into the world as a humble servant who laid down his life and who welcomes all who believe in him to know him and to know the true life that are found in him to the glory of God. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much that we have a great Savior. Lord, that we are imperfect people. We might be nice people even, but we're still imperfect. We're still sinful. We still rebel against you. Lord, it's a price, it's a debt that we have racked up that we could never repay. But we have a Savior who gave his life so that we could have eternal life. He paid the price for our sins so that we could be forgiven. And may we believe in that. And may we share that with others. In his name we pray. Amen.